Okay, so last week we began looking at the, 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 God's response to sin, right? So we commit this sin. God creates us to, to become like him. We sin against him, rebel against him, and, and sell ourselves. Adam and Eve, our first parents, unknowingly sold the entire human race into slavery to this creature, Satan. And we began looking last week about how God responds, which his primary response or his first response is generosity, right? He provides for his people throughout history, not just in Jesus. Of course, it culminates in Jesus, but, but he's provided throughout. Now, now this week we want to look, uh, and, and it's the same story, but we want to shift perspective and ask the question, like, what was Jesus thinking the entire time? You know, when, when we read the story of, of, of his passion, what was, what was going through his mind the entire time? Like, did he want to be doing this? What, what, what was the deal? As he was hanging on the cross, breathing his final breaths, right? What was going on? What was going through his mind? To do that, we got to ask a question, right? We have to just take some time to consider. So you got to imagine someone walks up to you someday, someone you don't know, and they ask you, are you a Christian? Hopefully you say yes, right? And they say, great, I've been looking for one. What's Jesus like? What do you say? What's Jesus like? I think our primary way today in our culture, you might have your own answer, but our primary way of talking about Jesus is, you know, like, well, he's kind and he's patient and he's gentle and compassionate and merciful. And those, those are all true. But as we, as we look at this today, I, I want to actually look at some scripture passages that that don't discount those. Like I said, those are all true, but that look at Jesus in, in a different way, in a, in a different perspective. For example, if, if you did the, the scripture readings that I gave you to read over, over the course of the week, you, you saw some things like, so Isaiah chapter 49, what does God say through Isaiah? He says, I will contend with those who contend with you. Right, what's he saying? I'm gonna fight those. There are people who are fighting against you. I will fight with them. Who primarily fights against us? The devil. Right, so what, what's God saying in Isaiah? I will come and I will fight the devil for you because he fights against you, my favorite creature. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So someone asks you, why did Jesus come? He came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. Is this your first answer when you think about this? I think for, for many of us, it's not. Uh, Jesus says this in John chapter 12. Uh, now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. Who's the ruler of this world? It's the devil, Satan. He rules over this world, exerts himself over us. And Jesus says, we're going to get rid of him. We're going to cast him out. We're going to throw him out of here. In Luke chapter 1, uh, after John the Baptist is born, Zechariah, his father, breaks out with this really beautiful speech, this really beautiful prayer of praise of God, talking about how God is so clearly at work in the world, and among the things that he's doing is that he has come to his people to set us free, to save us from the hands of our enemies. Who are our enemies? Sin, death, Satan, hell. This is what God has done. Jesus, he uses a parable in the Gospels of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we'll look at the one from Luke. Jesus says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when one stronger than he assails him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, who's the strong man? The strong man is Satan. What's the palace? What is his palace? It is this world. When he guards it with, as, as being fully armed with his weapons, what are his weapons? Deceit and accusation, flattery, divisions, right? When he guards his palace with his strategy, with his weapons, his goods are in peace. What are his goods? Us. We've been sold into slavery. He possesses us. And Jesus says as long as he guards his palace, 
His goods are in peace. Not to say that we are peaceful, but that we are peacefully in his possession. No one's contending with him. But then he says this, but when one stronger than he assails him and overcomes him, then what happens? He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Who is the stronger one? It is Jesus. Jesus is the stronger one who does what? He assails him. He, he goes to war against him and he overcomes him primarily in his death and his resurrection. So that what? So that he can disarm him, can take away his strategies, make them ineffective, and divide the spoil. Who's the spoil? It's you and me to bring us back to the house of the Father. This is who Jesus is, right? So hopefully, hopefully you can think of Jesus in a different way maybe than you normally do to consider what is, what is the incarnation. When we think of Jesus as this little baby in a manger, what's going on there? This is an invasion. Jesus comes from the stronger kingdom to invade the house of the strong man, to go to war against him. Remember, way back on Ash Wednesday, I talked about this image of D-Day, right? The Allies invade France because France has been conquered by a tyrant. Jesus invades earth because the earth has been conquered by a tyrant. That's what Christianity ultimately is. It is an invasion of one kingdom by a stronger kingdom. And the war primarily takes place, I mean, it takes place leading up to, but it primarily takes place in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Which, which maybe, maybe is something that we're not accustomed to thinking about, but the earliest Christians, the earliest, so the church fathers is what they're called, they would speak about the crucifixion, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, similar to how we would, but there was an additional way that they spoke about this that for some reason we've really lost sight of in, in today's world. They would speak about how Jesus on the cross in his death is going to war to rescue us. They would speak about it in that way, right? Which, which is confusing to us because we look at the crucifixion, we look at Jesus, and we see somebody who, who looks pathetic. We see somebody who looks like, oh man, it's too bad that he's this victim, this innocent victim, unjustly condemned, and you know, it, like that, that he, was, he was killed, right? It's too bad. But in fact, what we have to understand is like, who is Jesus, right? Jesus, again, if we look at the Gospel of John, the very beginning, it's, it's clear in other Gospels too, but especially in John chapter 1, he tells us that Jesus is the eternal word of God, that Jesus is God himself, who has always existed, who created the heavens and the earth. If that's true, that that's who Jesus is, then how are you going to make him do anything? The only way the crucifixion works is if he wants to be there. The only way Jesus is hanging on the cross, bloody, gasping for air, dying, is if he chooses it. That's what we believe is happening on the crucifixion. So C.S. Lewis explains it this way. He says, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise. What's going on? Jesus is God, right? So he knows his creatures better than his creatures know themselves. He knows that Satan is incredibly smart. Satan, being incredibly smart, knows that he's not God, that he can't ever be God, and that he can't compete against God. So if God was to come to earth in all of his glory and majesty, Satan wouldn't fight him. But Jesus comes to earth looking for a fight. And so he comes in disguise, trying to convince this creature that he's just another man, so that this other creature will go to war against him. 
The best image I've heard of is, is an ambush predator. So an ambush predator, think of, think of like a lion, a tiger, a snake, a spider, right? You've probably got a bunch of them in your house actually, right? So, so this creature that what? That tries to blend in with its environment as much as it possibly can, lying motionless and still, all for the purpose of trying to get its prey to draw close. And when the prey is close enough, it pounces and devours. Jesus, from the time of his agony in the garden, leading up to and including his crucifixion, is an ambush predator. He's more and more camouflaging his divinity, blending in more and more with his environment. Think about this. What do, you, what do we see him doing? This is God, right? We see him sweating blood. We see him arrested and chained, judged. God is judged, stripped, mocked, spit upon, crowned with thorns, and nailed to a tree. These are things that we wouldn't dream of doing to God. And yet Jesus allows them to be done so that by the time he gets to the cross, what's he doing? He's lying motionless and still waiting for his prey to draw close. So you have to let yourself imagine this. You have to let yourself imagine. It's an invisible conversation, but like Satan draws close to Jesus as he's gasping for his final breaths. He says to him, you know, you're, you're a pretty special guy, but I've seen lots of special guys. I know you're living righteously, but I've seen lots of righteous people. In a minute, you're going to die because everybody dies. And when you die, you're mine forever. And it's in that moment that what? You can imagine Jesus like looking up. We heard today, he cries out and he breathes his last and he gives up his spirit and he dies. But when he dies, what happens? He enters into Satan's kingdom of darkness and there is revealed his divinity. His divinity, which is the light of the world. When you go into a dark room and you turn a light on, what happens? The darkness scatters. Jesus intentionally goes into the kingdom of darkness so that from within that kingdom, he can conquer it and destroy it. This is what's going on. He's tricked the very one who tricked us. It's a trap that he set and planned perfectly. Other saints have used it, uh, have used other analogies like bait on a fish hook, right? His, his humanity is the bait so that when Satan takes the bait, he can set the hook with his divinity. Or like bait on a mousetrap, when Satan takes the bait, what happens? His divinity sets the trap and snaps down upon him. Jesus comes to the house of the strong man, the kingdom of the strong man, and he binds him and he overcomes him by his death and by his resurrection. We'll look more at the resurrection when we get to Easter next week, but you got to imagine Jesus emerging from this empty tomb where his dead body was buried and, and the, the, the rock was rolled over it. He emerges from this empty tomb with this great shout of praise or this great cry of, of, of a battle warrior, right? Of like, who is he who contends with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. You gave me the best that you could give me, and I've proven victorious. You see, Jesus is he's not only patient and kind and gentle and merciful. He's all those things, yes. But in his death and his resurrection, Jesus proves that above all, he is absolutely unconquerable. This is who he is. This is his response to sin. Of course, we'll look more at it next week, but to understand this, he comes to war to fight for you. 
So you don't have to live in sin anymore. A couple of questions to just reflect on. Does this have any meaning to you? Does it open your eyes in any way? Or some of you may be still a little sleepy. Do you understand this? That you matter this much to God? That he fights for you when you rebel against him? He goes to war for you, to die for you, so that you could be set free.